Ours was the first revolution in the history of mankind that truly reversed the course of government and with three little words, we the people. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car and we decide where it should go and by what route and how fast. Almost all the world's constitutions are documents in which governments tell the people what their privileges are. Our constitution is a document in which we the people tell the government what it is allowed to do. We the people are free. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. And that was President Ronald Reagan giving his farewell address to the people of this great country in 1989. And we played that clip for a reason. On September 17, 1787, delegates to the Constitutional Convention signed the Constitution in Philadelphia. And today is Constitution Day. Actually, here on Our American Stories, it's Constitution Week. And what better way to kick things off than to spend the day, our two hours, with the best in the country on this subject, Dr. Larry Arn, who wrote The Founder's Key, also Churchill's Trial, but most important, he's the president of Hillsdale College, and they sponsor all of our This Day in Histories, of course. But more important, one of the only colleges in the country to require that students study the Constitution, that along with our military academies. Dr. Arn, I want to start at the beginning. To understand the Constitution, we need to go back to the Declaration of Independence, We're about to play a different president, a Democrat president, John F. Kennedy, reading the first two parts of this important four-part document. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. And Dr. Arn, that's John F. Kennedy. He went on to actually record the entire Declaration of Independence. You write about that connection between the Constitution and the Declaration in your book, and that, of course, is the Founder's Key. Talk about that connection, the divine and the natural particularly. Uh, Well, it's a radical and revolutionary document. And those two clips you played, one by the Republican Reagan and the other by the Democrat Kennedy, capture that spirit of it because it means that uh, what the Declaration is saying there is there's such a thing as a human being and it's not the same kind of thing as a horse or a dog. And so it must not be governed as a horse or a dog would be governed. It must be governed according to its consent. It is the kind of thing able to give its consent. Now that's simple and clear, but Reagan makes the point that it almost never prevails anywhere. 
And, uh, you know, the, the, the King of England, George III, uh, contrived three responses to the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he hired a lawyer to write a legal response. He gave his own response from the address from the throne in 1776, and he hired Jeremy Bentham to write a response. And all of those responses dwelled on the duty of a people to obey their sovereign king. It was exactly the opposite point. And that led Winston Churchill to formulate one of his most, uh, his fa one of his favorite phrases, he would say, there are but two kinds of government, the ones where the government owns the people and the ones where the people own the government. And so that, that fundamental distinction is written in the obviously observable facts any time you look at a human being and look at a dog and see the difference between them. And by the way, Dr. Oren, every year on this day in history, we play, we have a, a, a recording artist record uh, George III's rebuttal, and it's a beautiful piece of uh, history that the folks need to hear, our, our listeners need to hear. Uh, talk about the significance of this gathering in Philadelphia. We're going to bother you with one more clip, but it's from a guy who made a speech at Hillsdale College, an historian named David McCullough. And I think this is important, and I think this is what great historians always remind people of. Let's hear and one of the lessons of history is that nothing happened in the past. No one lived in the past. They lived in the present. It was their present, not ours. Very, very important because they don't know how things are going to come out any more than we know how things are going to come out. And that's such an important point. What were the stakes for these men uh, well, it, uh, the stakes were life and death. They, uh, th there was a warrant issued for their arrest to the British general commanding the troops in North America. In other words, not an order to a policeman who would put them in jail and then take them before a judge, a soldier who would detain them and ship them to England or hang them on the spot where they were arrested. So that's, you know, the last sentence of the Declaration of Independence says, in support of these of this declaration, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And many of them lost those lives or their fortunes, none of them their honor. And none of them their honor is right, but my goodness, the risks they took. Some said they were signing their death warrant and knew it when they signed the Declaration of Independence. And when we come back, we're going to continue with the story of the founding of this country and the founding and the signing of the Constitution of the United States with Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College. And by the way, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And I would highly recommend the Constitution 101. It's terrific. Every family should watch it this week. Again, go to hillsdale.edu. When we come back, the story of our country, the story of our founding, continues here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the celebration of Constitution Day. And every September 17th, everyone in this country should do the same, because on this day in history in 1787, delegates to the Constitutional Convention signed the U.S. Constitution in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We were just hearing from David McCullough, who was talking about the fact that history didn't have to happen the way it happened. Dr. Ron, could you expand on that point? What McCullough's, David McCullough, what a wonderful man he is, uh, what, is what his point there is, is that, uh, you know, it's hard for us to look back on the past and understand that they're living just the way we are without knowledge of the future. And if you can grasp that fact about the people in Philadelphia, those men in that little room, were both, by the way, the same room, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were drafted and ratified, uh, in one case sent to the people for, uh, in the, sent to state ratifying conventions in the case of the Constitution, they just passed it and put their names on the Declaration of Independence in that room. And, you know, we know what the king thought. The king thought, this is a crazy claim. I'm the king. There's always been a king. There has to be a king. And you have to obey the king. And the king, by the way, has to be good to you. And so this is crazy. So they're introducing a thing that nobody believes. And then add to it, they're introducing it in controversy, ultimately treason, against the strongest living force, the British Empire, and its navy especially, but also its army. Recently, twice beaten France in major wars, right? And so what possible chance could they have? You know, because they... When they wrote the Declaration of Independence, they didn't really have anything that you could call an army. And uh, George Washington had been appointed head of it because he had the most experience of anybody in war, of anybody in the revolutionary side. But he had never moved a large body of troops from one place to another or fed them along the way in his life. And the British were practiced at all that stuff and had hundreds of staff guys who knew all about how to do that. And so in the beginning, the war was ridiculous because we couldn't get our army around anywhere. And the British would always just encircle us, right? It was just funny how bad it was. And so the implausibility of it also demonstrates something, and that is they really believed this, and they were prepared to die for it. And that's the only reason it worked. What do you think the percentage was, Dr. Arn, of Americans then who were for the war, against the war? And what percentage were just hiding under the table, just hoping it would all pass? Well, uh, you know, there's so there's historical speculation about that. And it's all speculation because we didn't have opinion polls back then. And today we have them and they're not accurate. Um, but the best, well, the, the guesses tend to congregate around 30% strongly for the revolution and a majority of the rest against or leaning against and a bunch of people trying to make up their minds. So it wasn't propitious. It was, uh, you know, they, you know, this is, and, and if you just think about it, that this is a people, by the way, you have to, you have to remember this for 150 years, uh, English settlers especially had been on the North American continent, and they had developed the richest, deepest, 
practices and institutions of self-government in human history. And they did that on their own, and the British had influence on it through the appointment of a governor general in each of the colonies. But that was it, right? And they raised their own taxes, and they paid their own bills and all that, and the British claimed, you don't pay us for defending you, and so you got to pay. So they, they had all that, and they're used to deciding things for themselves. Now, on the other hand, this is like a huge decision, and nobody knows where it's going to go. And we're used to these British, and are they really so bad? And so, of course, I, it's plausible to me, although we don't really know, that most people were very reluctant about this. And that makes for a remarkable story, too, because the way the war ended, you know, it went on forever, by the way, and, uh, and the way it ended was Cornwallis, who was a very good general and ended up being the one ultimately defeated in the final battle at Yorktown, Cornwallis decided that down in the South, there was a lot of public support for the British, and they would go down there, and it would be easier to take care of their army, and they would have, they could, you know, raise and you know, nourish themselves and increase their strength by having a population at their back. That's what the British thought they needed. They didn't have, they never had that, right? Well, they found out that they didn't like them any better in North and South Carolina than they liked them in Massachusetts, and then they extended their supply lines, and so they all got raided like crazy and they lost their goods and it was just a devil to sustain their army you know that's when francis marion the swamp fox became famous and uh and so he didn't have any support right and that demonstration is what led him to take his army back northwards to yorktown near the sea in virginia where he got bottled up because the french fleet kept the british fleet away for once in in a lifetime, and they destroyed Cornwallis's army. Well, that means that opinion apparently congealed in favor of this thing, but that took time. It took time. So let's fast forward now. The, the, the war is over. Uh, the country's been living under this thing called the Articles of Confederation. I'll never forget, Dr. Arnon, you may have, but it was the first time I ever sat in one of your classes. I had thought myself not really worthy of having to prepare for your class, uh, because I had gone to the University of Virginia School of Law, and you, of course, called on me, and you said, Mr. Habib, what problems were the founders trying to solve with the Constitution? And I gave a few really bad answers. Uh, <laughs> and then your students corrected me. Uh, correct, <laughs> correct everybody here. What was the central problem that the founders were trying to solve with the, artic with the, uh, the, the flaws within the Articles of Confederation? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it is as fundamental as the problem addressed in the Declaration of Independence. That Declaration of Independence addresses the problem, who has proper title to rule? And that's the age-old political question. That's what Plato's Republic is about, among other things, mainly about that, though. And so they address that, and that, that's, that's what you call in classical thinking final causality. What's the ultimate reason, the ultimate good that establishes something? But then the second thing is, because they adopted this new principle that had never been adopted before, they're going to require a different way of governing, and that's what we call the formal cause, the form, the way we will work together so it can work. And there's no experience in human history like that, except as they write in the Federalist Papers, among all of the ancient and medieval democracies, which were short-lived and turbulent, 
And so they they thought that it would be very hard to make this work. And, you know, in the beginning, under the Articles of Confederation, the colonies were ridiculous. Uh, they didn't pay their bills. They didn't keep their commitments to one another. They wouldn't sustain an army. Uh, they didn't have any credit. They uh, This growing country, desperately in need of capital, couldn't borrow any money. And uh, And... Then parts of the countryside, especially in Massachusetts, fell out of the rule of law. And uh, a man named Shea is a farmer. He led a rebellion against collecting mortgages. And uh, so when the day when the mortgages were due, there'd be bodies of men, and they would come and shut down the banks and stop the collection of debt. And, of course, that meant then necessarily nobody could borrow any money. And so everything was grinding to a halt. And Madison lists all of this in a really great document that he wrote in preparation for writing the in preparation for the preparation to go to the Constitutional Convention. And uh, this is called the Vices of the Political System of the United States. And he lists them all, right? And he says that what they boil down to is our worse selves are in control. Because the passion of the moment is what decides everything and passions change. And so we need a structure or form of government that would achieve something. Madison says in Federalist Papers that the thing it achieves is our reason alone must be placed in control of the government. Our passions must be controlled by it. And so now these new governors, right? Because now we're not going to be governed by a king. We're going to be governed by ourselves. And the question is, what part of ourselves? The better part, what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature, or the worst part? And what a question it is. And what a story this is. The story of the founding of our country, Constitution Day, celebrated here on Our American Stories, all week long. When we come back, we continue our conversation with Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue our celebration of Constitution Week. And joining us is Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, a true scholar, but also a terrific storyteller, as you can tell. And he joins us to bring the history of our Constitution, our country, to life. Dr. Arn, I'd like to talk to you about the key influences on the thinking of the founders. My dad always told me that you are, son, what you read. What were these guys reading? Well, the most cited author is Montesquieu, French philosopher, who wrote a lot about the separation of powers. He was a sort of great apostle in, uh, in uh, thought of that thing. And, that, of course, separation of powers supplies the structure of the Constitution of the United States, now, of course, much 
violated with the bureaucratic state. But uh, that idea is uh, the key idea. And, you know, John Locke was about not as much as Montesquieu, not mentioned as much in the founding literature. Uh, and John Locke, the Declaration of Independence, sounds like passages from Locke's second treatise, which is a powerful document about the rights of man. And, uh, you know, a really big thing that they read that sparked the revolution was Common Sense by Thomas Paine, who was, you know, a sort of tremendous and mighty nut. Uh, he's He had a very turbulent life. There's funny stories about him. I mean, he, for example, he went to help the French Revolution, and he got arrested, and he was in a French prison, and they were going to execute him. And they would come by at night, and they would mark and chalk on the door of the people who were to be executed. And they put that on Thomas Paine's door one night. But then he was popular with the guards because he was a really interesting guy to talk to. And so he, in the morning, they had his door open so they could talk to him. And the people who came by to take people off for execution didn't see the chalk mark. <laughs> and, so, and so that night of the day of his supposed execution, that night, the forces who were trying to get him killed were themselves deposed and soon killed, and so his life was spared. Anyway, that's Tom Paine, and he wrote one great book in his life. I think he wrote other books that are kind of silly and even one of them kind of wicked, but uh, Common Sense, which George Washington said, that book persuaded me to go for revolution. Indeed, and by the way, we have a recording of Common Sense on the day in history that it was released, a dramatic reading of a good portion of it, Dr. Arn. And my goodness, when it was done, we were thinking, we're still arguing about the same things all these years later. I wonder if the people listening to this know that you are a revolutionary and imaginative force in radio, Lee Habib, because you are. Well, we're doing, we're doing what we can here, Dr. Arn. Let's talk about the people now. We've talked about the ideas. Who are these people? Who are, let's talk about what you might think are the four or five most important people in that room. And I want to start with George Washington, because he was there. He had the big chair in the center. And, and by the way, everybody listening should take their family to Assembly Hall. It is worth the trip. The Liberty Bell. But that, that building, it's so small. Go in the summer when they were there, because they were in the summer. There was no air conditioning, and they closed the windows. So, yeah. so talk about George Washington first, Dr. Warren. Why was he there? What did he do? And talk about three or four others. Well, if you had to name one who was indispensable, it's Washington. Uh, and in his case, that is literally the case, according to James Madison. Uh, Washington had so distinguished himself in the Revolution by the combination of his bravery on the battlefield and his proof of how trustworthy he was with power, because he resigned. There's a story that may or may not be true, but uh, there's, there's evidence for the story. It's never been fully established. Anyway, the prime minister says after the Battle of Yorktown had passed, you know, we have to have a peace conference here. And, uh, you know, the king didn't want to do it. He'd lost the new world. And that's a bad, bad thing to happen to a fellow. And the king said, George Washington will not know how to be a king. He will be a tyrant, and people will want me back. Now, you see the assumption, right? Conquerors always get to be rulers after they conquer. Napoleon, everybody in history, right? So... The prime minister said, I understand that General Washington has resigned his commission and gone home. And the king is said to have said, he stirred himself and said, 
If he did that, he's the greatest man alive. You see, well, if that story is not true, I can tell you why it had currency. That's what everybody thought. And they thought that because he had given up his sword. And uh, that's not the rule. So they can't really call the convention without him. And there was an episode that proves this because not long before the convention, you know, Madison and Hamilton were the chief busybodies getting the convention called. And they did the most thinking uh, about how to do it. And they had heavy influence, but not dominant, during the convention. And that's a good story because the convention, everybody contributed. and The convention came to it a different agreement than anybody went there with. And then an amazing number, almost all of them, supported the Constitution for the rest of their lives. Well, those two guys are important, and they think they can't get anybody to come unless they got George Washington coming. And George Washington got scruples about coming because there was a rumor, and George Washington didn't like rumors. He didn't like his reputation defamed. And the rumor was about the Society of the Cincinnati, named for a Roman statesman who had been a, 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 a saving soldier and then returned to farming. And this society was formed of the uh, of the people who fought. It still goes today, by the way. Uh, was formed by people who fought in the Revolutionary War, and they would get together. And, you know, they had a bond, these people, because they won this amazing victory through much years of suffering. So anyway... That thing was accused of being an aristocratic society. And so Washington was accused of trying to start an aristocracy. It's actually the opposite what the point was. And so there was this, a meeting scheduled of the society, and he made up an excuse not to go so he wouldn't be rumored about or leave the impression that he was an aristocrat. But then that was about the time of the Constitutional Convention, and so he said he wasn't going to go to that because he didn't want to embarrass the society of the Cincinnati. And uh, James Madison in Montpelier, also in Virginia, read the letter from Washington, and he didn't answer the letter. He got on his horse and went there, and he talked him into going, and he didn't think he could hold it if Washington didn't go. And at the convention, Washington really only said a couple of things, one at the end. He stated a slight reservation about one provision of the Constitution, and still he thought it was an excellent document and should be supported. And that was his way of leading, because he's telling everybody, I'm surrendering my objection for the sake of the common good. And then when George Washington spoke that way, everybody listened. Um, so there's Washington was terribly important. And the second most important person was probably Madison because he did so much work to get it done, get the convention called, and so much work in advance of it. And then I happen to be partial to his numbers of the Federalist Papers, which are fewer than those of Alexander Hamilton. I love Hamilton's too. And they uh, rise to the sublime in many places. They, they show the deep ambition of the Constitution to rule in a way so that our better selves are in control of the government. And uh, I think that's very sophisticated of him. And then Hamilton after him was very important. Washington, Madison, Hamilton, these are giants, 
giants, not only in American history, but world history. These men changed the world. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation, our storytelling, with Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College. And this may be one of the greatest stories ever told, folks, one we should all know better. And by the way, you can hear all that we do here on Our American Stories by going to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter, give us your email, and we'll send you our five best stories every week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories. We'll be back after these commercial messages. back with Dr. Larry Arn. We've been talking about the founders, the books they read, and now we're just going to talk briefly about how this thing came to be. How did it get passed? And then we'll take apart the structure. Dr. Arn, talk about that. How did this document make its way to passage? You know, the Constitution had to be passed, and, it, and uh, they did a clever thing, which also makes a kind of uh, gap in the logic of the history of America, because Lincoln's presentation of the history and the Federalist presentation during the Revolution is the colonies came together, they'd always been united through the uh, empire, and they came together and formed the nation on a day, and there was never a day where they were separate. And I believe that's true, by the way. But by, uh, by calling for, uh, by setting up the Constitution, so that it could be ratified by only nine states, that left the prospect that maybe four wouldn't join. Now, they did all join eventually, Rhode Island, three years later. But, uh, but what if it hadn't, right? And South Carolina in 1860, during its secession, makes a lot of that point. But it didn't happen, right? And, but they did that because they knew that it would be hard to get un- unanimity but if they could get to nine, then the other four would feel immense pressure to join. And, they, and that's exactly what happened, by the way. It, it was hardest, except for Rhode Island, in the big states, in Virginia and Massachusetts and New York, big power states, right? But you had uh, James Madison to argue for it in Virginia, and they brought John Hancock out of retirement to argue for it in Massachusetts, and then you had Hamilton in New York, and that's why they wrote the Federalist Papers. And so those guys were very important in the ratification. And then by the time it got to New York, they could see that they really didn't have much choice because most of the Union had joined, and it was enough to go into effect, and they had a port that benefited greatly from being the place where all the goods came in for the whole Union. So they, by hook and by crook, especially those three guys, put it together. But you have to add Roger Sherman, who was a very great man from Connecticut. He proposed the compromise that united the small and the large states. Because, of course, the, and Madison and Hamilton's plan was that it would be uh, the, the new, the federal government would become representative of people only. And so, therefore, the large states would have more 
representatives and that it would be able to legislate in all cases whatsoever. And that means no enumeration of powers. That was the original plan of Madison and Hamilton. And the two great changes to the document were on those two points, because Sherman proposed eventually, because, you know, the small states all came with the plan that it would be like the Articles of Confederation. States would be represented, each one equally. And the compromise that came was that the House of Representatives would represent people and the Senate would represent states. And that brought them together. And then the concerns of runaway big government were very much alleviated by this enumeration device. So in other words, the federal government can only do the things that are said there that it can do. And so those two things were huge things, and Sherman had a lot to do with them. And uh, so, but you know, everybody, Jerry and uh, Pinckney from South Carolina, a lot of those people, they were, you know, they were brilliant people. And they talked a lot, and they talked well, and they came together in that, as you rightly point out, shuttered, darkened, stifling room where they spent the summer. Let's get into the structure now of this document, because it's the structure that matters. I mean, the Bill of Rights are sitting there. We're going to talk about them later. But, you know, lots of countries have Bill of Rights, but they don't have a structure to protect those. I mean, Russia had Bill of Rights, um, but so what? So let's talk about Article I first and the structure of our government, the legislative branch. Why was this Article One, Dr. Arn? Well, all government starts with legislation. If it's to be government and it's to be uh, something other than, you know, Adolf Hitler making up his mind today what to do, then there has to be some process for recording a law. It has to be legitimate, the law. And especially if you're going to have consent of the governed, then there has to be a representative process to pick the ones who pass the law. And until there's law, there's nothing for the government to do. So that's why it's first. It, every, every government action starts with the law, uh, although not so much these days. And that's the most important branch, and they thought it was the most dangerous branch because they, you know, the political science of the founding, which draws heavily on the classics... And what classic philosophy teaches you is that human beings have volition, that is to say they can decide what to do and become the source of their own actions. And so the great question is, are the actions good? And to be good, they have to be restrained. You do have to act, and you, you're, the glory of mankind is that it can be the source of an action, whereas, say, dogs, for example, act from instinct. But is the action good? And because we're passionate beings, is the action restrained? Now, in our society, the great strength comes from being close to the people. And the legislature is closest to the people because there's a lot of members of the legislature and they represent uh, districts or states and they have an intense part of the political community for whom they work. And so they have a lot of authority, and so the founders are afraid that this body will take over and dominate all the government. And in a curious way, that's sort of what's happening, but it, it took a step because they put the founders put many safeguards in against that, and they worked until they were flanked by something. 
So, yeah, the legislature is first, and it's got to contain protections. And the chief protections in it, in that article, are two. One is there are two houses, and a law can't be a law until both of them pass it, and then the president signs it. And the second one is there's a list of things they can do, and they're not given power to do any other things. And let's talk about the Senate, because uh, the Senate was not only for the states, but the Senate was six years at the term, and in the House it was two uh, the cooling saucer, uh, as it was described. Talk about why six years versus two. Well, six years and then also the terms are staggered, right? So the Senate never all turns over. It's a continuous body. But the idea is that they're to be experienced. They're going to have a step away from the direct control of the people because they've got a long time in office. And so they can make judgments and provide continuity and uh, not be so panicky. It's actually happened, by the way, that uh, because we've done the direct election of senators, which is the one part of the current Constitution that I would change. I would repeal that and give the states the protection they were given originally by controlling the Senate. Let's talk about the executive branch next. What did the founders have in mind with this article, and why did they give the president such limited and specific powers. So first of all, the dramatic thing is they gave him wide and focused powers, both. Because first of all, you know, much of the debate, by the way, between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists in the ratification stage of the Constitution is about whether this executive is going to become a king. And the argument in the Federalist is you shouldn't divide the executive. It should just be one thing. And there are two reasons for that. One is uh, the spirit of executive action is execution. The spirit of legislative action is deliberation. Deliberation. We need to talk and think. You know, we just said these people had the experience that the Constitutional Convention went very well, and they came to an agreement, and they made it better, they thought and wrote, most of them, than any of them would have made by themselves, right? So they're to think and talk, and it's supposed to take time. On the other hand, the executive's on a schedule all the time. Stuff is happening. And so he's got to be empowered to act. And, and to, he only is to execute the law. That's the limit on him. But he's got wide latitude, and he's given all of that power, just, by the way, as the Congress has given all of the legislative power. And, you know, they delegate that out to the bureaucracy now, and I think that's unconstitutional in the cause of big government. So the, the president, the first, the first attribute is there's just one of him. They think then to the second that that makes him more accountable because there's no confusion about who to blame. And that's the argument in the Federalists. So you get this unitary executive who only begins work when the Congress has finished its work, although he has a share of the legislative power, too. He has to sign the bills, and he can veto bills, and he can, he can be overridden by a, a uh, supermajority in the Congress, but that means, effectively, they gave the president one-sixth of the legislative power. And, uh, and that, you know, that's because, uh, you know, it takes two-thirds to override him, and if I get my math right, the difference between a half and two-thirds is a sixth. And, uh, and so he's a pivotal person, and he's the one who does things. So, yeah, it's a, it's a different animal. 
and it's very important, but you can't say that any part of the government is more important than others. It's the combination of them that makes the thing. And indeed, that's true. And we've been talking to Dr. Larry Arn, and we're going to continue our conversation in the next hour, celebrating the Constitution. And on this day in history, the Constitution was signed by our founders in 1787 in Philadelphia. The American story, the story of the Constitution, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, in 1787, at Assembly Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, our founding fathers signed the Constitution. Joining us to talk about that is Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, and we're going to continue our storytelling about this remarkable day and this remarkable document. Dr. Arn, the Articles of Confederation had real limitations. And so when the founders were getting together, they were trying to solve a problem, but they were trying to avoid other problems. And that would probably be excessive legislation coming from a centralized power. Talk about both things. One of the complaints against the Articles of Confederation is you can't get anything done. We need a more powerful government where we can get things done. But you want the right things done. And that means you want laws passed that are thought through and compromised across a whole nation. Another reason to distribute power in the federal government and by state and also to the states is because that distributes power geographically. And people in different sections of the country live different lives and they should have representation, right? And the compromise will be the thing that works for the whole nation. And so they, they want action. They want us to Win our wars, you know, just remember, executive branch, execute. Think what those words mean, right? And the, the, you know, the urgent power of government is, involves force, you know, national defense and enforcement of the law. And so you, you need action, too, and, but action is constrained by the necessity of a deliberative legislative process, and then I guess the thing we're going to talk about next, by the power of the judicial branch to check both branches in individual cases. Indeed, and that's Article 3, so let's continue with uh, the judiciary. Well, that's it. And see, just think how important that is, right? We, we mistake uh, so much about the judiciary now. In the, in the bureaucratic age, under progressive thought, we think that we hire these nine people and we dress them in those black robes and their job is to be wise and decide for all what the Constitution of the United States means. And that's so far from the intention. It's something else. They have an absolute power, but it's very specific. And that is the case in front of them that will be, it, it will arise either by a dispute between two citizens and neither of them can decide it alone because they're equals, or else it's the government doing something to a citizen. And that means the power 
of the executive branch, armed with law, has reached out his hand and grabbed them round the neck. And then he, he, he can't do anything to them until he takes them to a judge who he cannot fire and who has taken an oath to the law alone. You see, the independent judiciary is, uh, you know, people say, is China going to become like us? I can tell you how you'll tell if they actually did have an independent judiciary, which they don't, right? And and so it's, you know, it just matters so much where in the party stands your friends, and that's how you win your court cases if they're high. So that point, right, that, that I'm going to get taken before somebody who's got a very different source of authority and who cannot be removed by the powerful branches of the government, and he can let me go. Let's talk about the Bill of Rights, because in the end, they were the, the afterthought almost. They came last. How did they come to be and why? Well, that's a great story. Um, the, uh, so Madison and Hamilton and the people who dominated or mostly got their way in the Constitutional Convention didn't want a Bill of Rights. And they write in the Federalist Papers why they didn't want one. They said, first of all, it'd be a source of mischief because you'll list some rights and then others, you know, will not be left off. That's why they wrote the Ninth Amendment they did, the way they did, right? They say there are others, too. Just because they're here doesn't mean that's all. Um, then they said... Uh, this is just a parchment barrier, whereas the real protection of our rights is in the structure of the Constitution, the way the powers are divided to yield both effectiveness and constraint. That's the thing that will keep us safe and our rights safe and make our government effective. And just making a list of rights won't help. And so that was the argument that apparently prevailed at the convention, they didn't propose a Bill of Rights and was argued in the Federalist. But here's what it came down to. You know, when they, uh, you know, Virginia is a big and mighty and powerful state and Massachusetts is a big and mighty and powerful state and New York is a big and mighty and powerful state. And they see that they're going to ratify the, the, the Constitution and they want to negotiate and get something. And they, and it's interesting what they demand, Right. They didn't say, you know, make sure my port remains the main port in America or the government do all its banking in my borders or anything, any of that log-rolling stuff. They asked for a Bill of Rights. If you'll agree to put that in there, then we'll support this thing. And what's interesting is none of the states that asked for that in the ratification conventions, and there were several, wrote into their ratification that that was a condition of the ratification. They took the word of the people campaigning for the Constitution, who had been opponents of a Bill of Rights. And sure enough, James Madison gave his word in Virginia, and he led the charge for it in the Congress after the new government went into operation. And that tells you something about how they thought back then, right? They thought there was an agreement government is for this, is to protect these rights. And we're not going to ask for anything special for ourselves. We're going to ask for firmer protection of these rights. And that's always seemed to me, by the way, a sign of the kind of friendship 
that underlie the controversies of the ratification process. Because remember, these people trusted these guys to do this after the Constitution went into effect, and their trust proved not to be misplaced. And indeed, it didn't. And when we come back, our final segment with Dr. Larry Oren celebrating the U.S. Constitution all week long. That's what we'll be doing. And Dr. Oren is the president of Hillsdale College. When we come back, the last part of this remarkable story about the founding of our country. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue with Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College. Now we're going to talk about the Bill of Rights. Let's talk about what many call negative rights versus positive rights. I mean, in the end, the Bill of Rights is a series of thou shall nots, and that no majority of Americans can deprive people of those particular rights. Talk about this idea of negative rights and what are now being called positive rights, mostly economic rights, Dr. Arn. So first of all, you you have to understand that they're different kind of things, and in my opinion, they're incompatible things, and I can explain why. Um, Negative rights means, and see, I I hate that term, right? I hate it. Uh, Because what? Negative rights is your right to pray, (laughs) you know, and, and talk. Our right to have this conversation. Those are central expressions of the specific human capacity. That's not negative. That's what we are. That's why we're not dogs, right? We can do this. And that's styled as a negative right. But then another thing styled as a negative right is your right to your own property. And that, too, is the clearest reason in the world why you have that right. We are necessitous creatures. If we don't drink just about every day and eat every other day, we'll die. And that means we're always needing to find a living. And uh, we've got this divine gift. We can think and talk and pray and speak and everything. But we're like animals in this. We've got to be grazing all the time. And so to store up in advance when times are good is crucial to survival. And once you've stored up a thing that's property and you're not using it, then somebody might take it. So you need that to be protected. And that is an aspect of human nature as clear as the right to worship, which, by the way, is not very clear anymore. So that's what they call negative rights. Now, positive rights are you have a right, you know, as Franklin Roosevelt said in uh, 1944, we have discovered new rights, and so we must have a new bill of rights. And he said, for example, a farmer should have a guaranteed price for his crops. Now, what does that mean? That means that... uh, I buy some land, and it turns out that this is the best land on earth to grow Mexican jumping beans. And let's say that I can make a killing on those if only people will buy them from me. But what if they don't want them? Then you're going to make them buy them, right? And that means their property is at the disposal of your prosperity. And that, these things that we call positive rights today... The negative rights, the real rights, in my opinion, 
they set up a harmony in society because uh, uh, you're a religious man, and I am too, right? And I happen to know because we know each other well that there are people in different religions, and we think that they ought to be able to pray any way they want to. And uh, we think that's a fundamental right. Forget the United States of America. That's just the way humans are. They should be able to do that. And they shouldn't oppress anybody else in the doing of that, right? And so that means that we can get along with people who don't agree with us about religion because we can all do what we want. doesn't take anything from anybody else, right? Whereas these positive rights, they set up constant friction and conflict in the society because if you're entitled to this, then if you don't have it, you can claim it from somebody else. And, you know, I hasten to say that I believe that it is a fundamental duty of the government to care for the poor and the unfortunate or any way for sure, especially the deserving poor. I'm in favor of all of that. But to claim that that is a greater right or even the same kind of right as freedom of speech is a logical confusion. Indeed. And I want to read from a 2000 speech you gave about this very point. One may pray all he pleases, and others are left to pray or not, and with all their property intact, short of slander, libel, or treason, one may say what he pleases and do no harm to another. One can see how the right to property, properly conceived, has this same attribute. If my property is the fruit of my labor and not of yours, then we have no conflict. My having my good deprives you of none of yours, and you having your good leaves me secure in mine." The interesting thing about this understanding of rights is the harmony it breeds in society. This harmony, or to use the political term, this justice, is the reason why our Constitution has lasted so long and our nation has prospered so well. And by the way, positive rights do the exact opposite thing, Dr. Arn, as you alluded. What we've done with this contrivance of this new kind of right is that we have turned Washington, D.C. into the hub through which is distributed and by whom is distributed all the goods in the society. And, of course, they take their vigorish off the top. And that's why it's such a swamp, in my opinion. And that's why people resent it. But I don't think that people resent Social Security. They just wish it was a real insurance policy. And I don't think people uh, resent welfare for people who are unable to work. But I think that this, when, when you get away from that and you start proclaiming a right, then you're setting up a conflict with people, and it's very widespread today. We talk a lot. When we do our art segments, uh, Dr. Arn, particularly we did one about Aretha Franklin and, and Carol King. Carol King, a Jewish girl from Manhattan, had written this beautiful song, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. Jerry Wexler, a really terrific businessman in New York, a record executive, shuttled that intellectual property, that song, to a young girl named Aretha Franklin. She recorded it, and together they all prospered because of the intellectual property right that the Constitution protects. They don't just protect property property, the Constitution, but our ideas, Doctor, on the patent is in Article One. The thing is, you know, Aretha Franklin could really sing. And Carol King could really write. And the combination benefited them both, but also look how much it benefited all of us if they had not had the kind of arrangement where they could both benefit from their contribution, they might not have cooperated, and then we wouldn't have that. 
And let's okay. talk about the fact that we have the oldest, we're not the oldest country, but we have the oldest constitution. There have been 17 amendments, so it's possible to change it, but hard. Why has this endured so long, and what do you see as the most substantive threat to the Constitution? Uh, well, it's uh, so of the 27 amendments, uh, by my count, 15 of them concern something fundamental. 12 of them are technical, presidential succession, things like that. But 15 of them are the 10 Bill of Rights, the three Civil War amendments, and the 16th and 17th Amendments, which changed how senators are elected and made the federal income tax possible. Now, of those 15 that are fundamental, there was a huge fight about them all. And most of them, I think all but two, are happy amendments. I'm glad they passed. The, the Civil War Amendments got rid of slavery. The Constitution, one of the reasons it's lasted so long is that it can change. And it's not easy to change it. That's another reason it's lasted so long. But in a case of urgent need, it can change. But then second, the structure has been incredibly effective, right? It works and it adjusts because, you know, uh, you know, America is the most successful country in human history, which means there's always a crisis going on. <laughs> you know, we just don't seem to be killed by them, you know, so far. That's because it's adaptable and it can work things out. And it sets up a system for discussion and adjustment. That's why it lasts. Now, what's the danger to it? Well, I think it's simple to state. I think that there actually is a change in the form of the government today. We now make about nine laws out of ten by a process outside the legislature. And those laws are made in the regulatory agencies, the federal laws I'm talking about. But they have enormous consequences for state law, which are many of which are also made by state regulatory agencies now. And these agencies, you know, first of all, they make it possible to make a lot more law than there used to be. The Congress of the United States in the last complete two-year cycle, you know, like a Congress of the United States last two years, it, it passed about the same number of laws, you know, about 100 a year, that it has passed since 1840. It, it works about the same way, and it passes about the same number of laws. But, of course, many times that number are passed now. But then add to that another point, and that is these regulatory agencies also have executive and judicial branches inside them. And that means that they pass the law, and then they enforce the law, and then when they bring charges or fines against people, the trial takes place in one of their employees. And so it's a destruction of separation of powers. And so I think that's the greatest danger in America today. I think it makes the government itself an interested force in the representative process. So I worry about that a lot. And many of us worry about the very same thing. We've been talking to Dr. Larry Arnn, the president of Hillsdale College. And by the way, to hear and learn all you need to learn about Hillsdale, go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for their terrific and free online courses. The Constitution 101 course is a must-see this Constitution week. This is Lee Habib, the celebration of our Constitution, its story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our celebration of Constitution Day. On this day in history, our Constitution was signed by the founders of this country in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in Assembly Hall in 1787. And you'd heard Dr. Arne talk about Thomas Paine, and George Washington had stated that without Thomas Paine's common sense, there was no Revolutionary War, which meant there was no Declaration of Independence, which meant there was no Constitution. My goodness. So without further ado, it's time to hear from Thomas Paine himself. We're going to have a dramatic reading of Common Sense But we wanted to talk to you about the milieu, the environment that he was writing in. Back in that day, in that time, nobody could talk about independence in public. Everyone was afraid. It was a treasonous act. Paine had to write something, by the way, an argument, a case, that would make people feel comfortable with the idea, the idea of challenging the monarchy and challenging the British and English constitution. So he does it in three stages, and you're about to hear them. First is sort of a little preamble, and he just lets everyone know that he's about to talk about something, and it has to do with the legitimacy, ultimately, of this thing called a monarchy and the Constitution. Because if he can delegitimize these things, then just possibly he can talk about independence, and then after that, after that, talk about the future. So let's start where Payne started with this... Let us just say prologue. No, let us just say the beginning of the beginning of the argument, or as we like to call it, the disclaimer. Perhaps the sentiments contained in the following pages are not yet sufficiently fashionable to procure them general favor. A long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right, and raises at first a formidable outcry in defense of custom. But the tumult soon subsides. Time makes more converts than reason. As a long and violent abuse of power is generally the means of calling the right of it in question, and in matters too which might never have been thought of, had not the sufferers been aggravated into the inquiry, and as the King of England hath undertaken in his own right to support the Parliament in what he calls theirs, and as the good people of this country are grievously oppressed by the combination, they have an undoubted privilege to inquire into the pretensions of both, and equally to reject the usurpation of either. In the following sheets the author hath studiously avoided everything which is personal among ourselves. Compliments as well as censure to individuals make no part thereof. The wise and the worthy need not the triumph of a pamphlet, and those whose sentiments are injudicious or unfriendly will cease of themselves, unless too much pains are bestowed upon their conversion. Payne then goes into making the argument, and by the way, remember the context again. There was the British taxation and rule that the colonists were getting tired of, the British were looking to flex their muscles, they were looking to get some of that money back to the British Empire, they'd spent a lot in conquest, and now they want it to be repaid. But yet the colonists, they've been exercising self-governance, as we learned from Dr. Horne, for a pretty long time. They really weren't in the mood, or were they? Let's continue with Thomas Paine. The cause of America is in a great measure the cause of all mankind. 
many circumstances hath and will arise which are not local but universal and through which the principles of all lovers of mankind are affected and in the event of which their affections are interested the laying a country desolate with fire and sword declaring war against the natural rights of all mankind and extirpating the defenders thereof from the face of the earth is the concern of every man to whom nature hath given the power of feeling of which class regardless of party censure is the author who the author of this production is is wholly unnecessary to the public as the object for attention is the doctrine itself not the man yet it may not be unnecessary to say that he is unconnected with any party and under no sort of influence public or private but the influence of reason and principle philadelphia february fourteenth seventeen seventy six thomas paine despised monarchies what he really had to do in this pamphlet was delegitimize the prejudice of englishmen in favor of their own government of king lords and commons arises as much or more from national pride than reason individuals are undoubtedly safer in england than in some other countries but the will of the king is as much the law of the land in britain as in france with this difference that instead of proceeding directly from his mouth it is handed to the people under the more formidable shape of an act of parliament for the fate of charles i hath only made kings more subtle not more just wherefore laying aside all national pride and prejudice in favour of modes and forms the plain truth is that it is wholly owing to the constitution of the people and not to the constitution of the government that the crown is not as oppressive in england as in turkey an inquiry into the constitutional errors in the english form of government is at this time highly necessary for as we are never in proper condition of doing justice to others while we continue under the influence of some leading partiality so neither are we capable of doing it to ourselves while we remain fettered by an obstinate prejudice and as a man who is attached to a prostitute is unfitted to choose or judge a wife so any prepossession in favour of a rotten constitution of government will disable us from discerning a good one pain is by the way stripping the tyranny of british rule to the bone let's continue with more in the early ages of the world according to the scripture chronology there were no kings the consequence of which was there were no wars it is the pride of kings which throw mankind into confusion holland without a king hath enjoyed more peace for this last century than any of the monarchical governments in europe antiquity favors the same remark for the quiet and rural lives of the first patriarchs have a happy something in them which vanishes away when we come to the history of jewish royalty government by kings was first introduced into the world by the heathens from whom the children of israel copied the custom it was the most prosperous invention the devil ever set on foot for the promotion of idolatry the heathens paid divine honors to their deceased kings and the christian world hath improved on the plan 
by doing the same to their living ones. How impious is the title of sacred majesty applied to the worm, who in the midst of his splendor is crumbling into dust. Arms, as the last resource, decide this contest. The appeal was the choice of the king, and the continent hath accepted the challenge. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Thomas Paine's Common Sense. It's Constitution Day. Heck, it's Constitution Week here on Our American Stories. And all of this is brought to us by the Stetson Family Office. And they're dedicated to bringing constitutional literacy to this country. That's the Stetson Family Office. And we're going to be talking more about this great group and to Chuck Stetson himself later on this week. When we come back... More of Thomas Paine's Common Sense, the pamphlet that launched a revolution in our Constitution. This is Our American Stories. celebrating Constitution Day here on Our American Stories in 1787 in Assembly Hall. Our founders signed the U.S. Constitution. And all week long this week, we're going to be celebrating the Constitution, the founders, and all else related to this remarkable story about the American story. Now let's return to Thomas Paine and his Common Sense, which was published in January of 1776 and was a bestseller quickly by April It turned colonial nostalgia for Britain into a demand for independence. But common sense wasn't only a radical condemnation of the status quo, but the very definition of the American spirit. Here's Paine. The sun never shined on a cause of greater worth. Tis not the affair of a city, a county, a province, or a kingdom, but of a continent, of at least one-eighth part of the habitable globe. "'Tis not the concern of a day, a year, or an age. Posterity are virtually involved in the contest, and will be more or less affected, even to the end of time, by the proceedings now. Now is the seed-time of continental union, faith, and honor. The least fracture now will be like a name engraved with the point of a pin on the tender rind of a young oak. The wound will enlarge with the tree— and posterity read it in full-grown characters. While Paine was able to paint vivid pictures with his words, he was also very direct in how the country should move forward. Our plan is commerce, and that, well attended to, will secure us the peace and friendship of all Europe, because it is the interest of all Europe to have America a free port. Her trade will always be a protection, 
and her barrenness of gold and silver secure her from invaders. Thomas Paine made a strong argument against, quote, men of passive tempers, unquote, who wanted reconciliation with Britain. Here again is Paine. Men of passive tempers look somewhat lightly over the offenses of Britain, and still hoping for the best, are apt to call out, Come, come, we shall be friends again for all this. But examine the passions and feelings of mankind, bring the doctrine of reconciliation to the touchstone of nature, and then tell me whether you can hereafter love, honor, and faithfully serve the power that hath carried fire and sword into your land. If you cannot do all these, then are you only deceiving yourselves, and by your delay bringing ruin upon posterity. Your future connection with Britain, whom you can neither love nor honor, will be forced and unnatural, and being formed only on the plan of present convenience, will in a little time fall into a relapse more wretched than the first. But if you say you can still pass the violations over, then I ask, hath your house been burnt? Hath your property been destroyed before your face? Are your wife and children destitute of a bed to lie on or bread to live on? Have you lost a parent or a child by their hands, and yourself the ruined and wretched survivor? If you have not, then are you not a judge of those who have. But if you have, and still can shake hands with the murderers, then are you unworthy of the name of husband, father, friend, or lover. And whatever may be your rank or title in life, you have the heart of a coward and the spirit of a sycophant. And he's getting tough here. He's talking tough to the readers after exploiting some of their sentiments about the monarchy itself and its illegitimacy, setting the template for much stronger language and making his case. Payne continues. O ye that love mankind, ye that dare oppose not only the tyranny but the tyrant, stand forth. Every spot of the old world is overrun with oppression. Freedom hath been hunted round the globe. Asia and Africa have long expelled her. Europe regards her like a stranger, and England hath given her warning to depart. O receive the fugitive! and prepare in time an asylum for mankind. Paine was convinced that 1776 was the right time and the right place to sever ties with Britain, and he was able to articulate the rationale behind this decision unlike any other man. Youth is the seed-time of good habits, as well in nations as in individuals. It might be difficult, if not impossible, to form the continent into one government half a century hence. The vast variety of interests, occasioned by an increase of trade and population, would create confusion. Colony would be against colony. Each being able might scorn each other's assistance, and while the proud and foolish gloried in their little distinctions, the wise would lament that the Union had not been formed before. Wherefore, the present time is the true time for establishing it. The intimacy which is contracted in infancy, and the friendship which is formed in misfortune, are, of all others, the most lasting and unalterable. Our present union is marked with both these characters. We are young, and we have been distressed. 
but our concord hath withstood our troubles, and fixes a memorable area for posterity to glory in. The present time, likewise, is that peculiar time which never happens to a nation but once, that is, the time of forming itself into a government. Most nations have let slip the opportunity, and by that means have been compelled to receive laws from their conquerors, instead of making laws for themselves. First they had a king, and then a form of government, whereas the articles or charter of government should be formed first, and men delegated to execute them afterward. But from the errors of other nations let us learn wisdom, and lay hold of the present opportunity to begin government at the right end. And what remarkable writing, folks. I mean, and today, my goodness, we're still having similar arguments, right? It may not be the monarchy of far-off parliament, but maybe it's a far-off city called Washington, D.C. And I think this is the discussion. Sovereignty, personal liberty, freedom in the end, freedom. Let's get to the final part of the argument, part four of Thomas Paine's Common Sense. He specifically calls for a declaration of independence, a declaration that would come to fruition just months after the pamphlet was finished. However strange it may appear to some, or however unwilling they may be to think so, matters not. But many strong and striking reasons may be given to show that nothing can settle our affairs so expeditiously as an open and determined declaration for independence, some of which are, first, it is the custom of nations, when any two are at war, for some other powers, not engaged in the quarrel, to step in as mediators, and bring about the preliminaries of a peace. But while America calls herself the subject of Great Britain, no power, however well disposed she may be, can offer her mediation. Wherefore, in our present state, we may quarrel on for ever. Secondly, it is unreasonable to suppose that France or Spain will give us any kind of assistance if we mean only to make use of that assistance for the purpose of repairing the breach and strengthening the connection between Britain and America, because those powers would be sufferers by the consequences. Thirdly, while we profess ourselves the subjects of Britain, we must in the eye of foreign nations be considered as rebels. The present is somewhat dangerous to their peace for men to be in arms under the name of subjects. We, on the spot, can solve the paradox, but to unite resistance and subjection requires an idea much too refined for common understanding. Fourthly, were a manifesto to be published and dispatched to foreign courts, setting forth the miseries we have endured and the peaceable methods we have ineffectually used for redress, declaring at the same time that not being able any longer to live happily or safely under the cruel disposition of the British court, we had been driven to the necessity of breaking off all connections with her, at the same time assuring all such courts of our peaceable disposition towards them, and of our desire of entering into trade with them, such a memorial would produce more good effects to this continent than if a ship were freighted with petitions to Britain. Under our present denomination of British subjects we can neither be received nor heard abroad. The custom of all courts is against us, and will be so, until, by an independence, we take rank with other nations. 
These proceedings may at first appear strange and difficult, but like all other steps which we have already passed over, will in a little time become familiar and agreeable, and until an independence is declared, the continent will feel itself like a man who continues putting off some unpleasant business from day to day, yet knows it must be done, hates to set about it, wishes it over, and is continually haunted with the thoughts of its necessity. And what words, folks, and that's what we love doing here on this show, letting you hear the words as often as possible of some of our great works. And my goodness, did Paine understand the psychological state of America, made them comfortable first with the idea of revolution by delegitimizing the monarchy and motivating them to action. A brilliant, behavioral and psychological and political dissertation. The writing, my goodness. And again, it applies today. And the reason we're doing it, of course, is because we're honoring all week long the founding of and signing of the Constitution. And that happened in 1787 on this day in history in Assembly Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And thanks to the Stetson Family Office for sponsoring this week's program. And they believe deeply that it is important for young people to know the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the story of their country. To learn more, go to www.constitutioncurriculum.org. Great materials are there for you, for your local schools, and for homeschoolers, too. This is Our American Stories, the story of the founding of our country. 